Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast where we interview authors of interesting and influential books in the field of, you guessed it, sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepakaya, and today we are interviewing Professor David M. Halprin on his new book, How to Be Gay, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. David M. Halprin is the W. H. Auden Distinguished University Professor of the History and Theory of Sexuality at the University of Michigan where he is also Professor of English Language and Literature, Women's Studies, Comparative Literature, and Classical Studies. He is the author or editor of 10 books, including 100 Years of Homosexuality, The Lesbian and Gay Studies Reader, What Do Gay Men Want?, and most recently, How to Be Gay. He also co-founded GLQ, a journal of lesbian and gay studies, which he co-edited from 1991 to 2005. Good afternoon, David. Hi. Hi. So we are talking to you today about your book, How to Be Gay. Um, so uh, this book was conceived because of a course that you taught um, at the University of Michigan. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit about that story? I thought it was pretty funny how, how the book came to be. Well, I was teaching a class in gay male, contemporary gay male literature, and I found that my students, including my gay male students, who had initially been very excited about the opportunity to take such a class, got bored with it, but not because they were bored with gay culture, because they were bored with the form of gay culture that the class was about, namely explicit, open uh, gay novels and stories, the sort of thing that had emerged after the Stonewall Rebellion and that, that were a proof of the success of gay liberation, the sort of open gay literature that had become possible since... Uh, the success of the gay movement. So that's what I thought, of course, in gay culture should be about. But I found that my students uh, ended up being more interested in watching TV series like The Golden Girls or Steel Magnolias or Desperate Housewives than they were in reading novels by Neil Bartlett or Alan Hollinghurst. And so in one of my periodic foredoomed efforts to please my students, I decided that I would try and teach a course about what they really liked instead of what I liked. And that's how I came to teach a course called How to Be Gay, which was not about the kind of gay culture that involves images or representations of gay men, not the kind of culture about gay men, by gay men, for gay men, but instead a course composed of the kinds of non-gay objects that gay men seem to like, from Grand Opera to Judy Garland to um, to um, Lady Gaga. So you said that may, mainly the uh, the course wasn't even um, intended to be for, for gay men. It was supposed to be anyone. You say that a person doesn't have to be gay to engage in gay culture. Is that right. correct? No, it wasn't. Obviously, it It wouldn't have been professional to teach a class at a public university 
that was limited to some particular demographic group. All classes are open to all students, all qualified students. And uh, I had recently been hired by the University of Michigan because of my work in the history of sexuality and queer theory. And they were looking for new courses in contemporary literature. So I decided to offer one in contemporary gain male literature, partly because uh, such a course hadn't been taught, partly because my department at the time had a strength in lesbian studies, so I didn't see why I should teach lesbian and gay male studies. I thought I should just concentrate on gay men. But obviously it was a class designed to appeal to any interested student at the University of Michigan who wanted to pursue a more in-depth study of contemporary gay male fiction. And this thing about gay culture, it's interesting because you said in your book that gay culture is widely accepted as existing and yet always denied by people when you mentioned that there is a gay culture. Well, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm encountering in reviews of my book. Apparently, mm -hmm. simply the notion that there is such a thing as gay culture produces such um, such turbulence in people uh, that they rarely get around to talking about my actual book. They get so worked up over this claim that there could be such a thing as gay culture that they don't even get around to engaging with what I say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and is that something that really surprised you? Well, yeah. I mean, I expected to be attacked for what I say about gay culture, but <laughs> but not for all sorts of things that I don't say or for simply somehow standing in the way of people's various projections about what it might mean for there to be a gay culture. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, you, you argue that um, gay subjectivity has been kind of, um, uh, I don't know, pushed down um, by gay identity? Could you explain a little bit what that means? Well, the gay movement on the whole has tended to sidestep questions about what it feels like to be gay because any attention to how queerly we feel would seem to reopen the question of our psychology and psychology is a tainted category for lesbians and gay men, as well as other sexual dissidents, because psychology is what's been used for so long to qualify us as sick. Homosexuality was thought of as involving an abnormal psychology, um, being a, a psychosexual perversion, and so one of the things that the gay movement had to struggle for in order to obtain basic human rights for lesbians and gay men was to overcome the notion that we were sick. And the way we were mostly thought to be sick was through our psychology. So the strategy was to stop inquiring into what went on in our inner lives and to bracket all that and to treat gay people just as a minority group like any other ethnic or religious minority defined by a history of discrimination rather than by some weird shenanigans that defined us or that indicated something about what we were really like. Um, and when, when you try to 
um, overcome prejudice or discrimination against Jews or, or Catholics or, or um, Italian Americans, uh, the first thing you do is not get involved in a discussion about what Jewish or Catholic or Italian culture is like or how Jews or Catholics or Italians perceive the world in different ways or what kinds of cultural or social practices set them apart from other people. You simply emphasize that they're human beings like any other and that they've suffered from a history of discrimination and they need to uh, be given uh, equal rights. Mm -hmm. So the same thing happened with the gay movement. But the effect of all that has been that we've been very hesitant even to open the question of what it feels like to be gay because uh, that's seen as threatening our precarious hold on, on human rights, which may be one reason why people don't engage with what I say about gay culture, why they're so allergic simply to the possibility that one might talk about gay culture or speculate about what might be involved in it. Right. And despite this allergy, though, um, the media eats it up, right? Because people talk about it all the time. I mean, there's there's all sorts of stereotypes that are that are used um, every day. And like you said in your book, you know, someone can adamantly be against what you're saying in terms of there even being a gay culture, and yet make some sort of you know side joke as uh, that relates to gay culture in the same breath. Yeah, I give tons of examples in my book. But uh, basically, the situation we're in is that there's some kind of official discourse, which is that gay people are just the same as straight people. Uh, there's nothing that differentiates us. We're all the same. We're all human beings. We all deserve equal rights. End of story. And then there's an unofficial discourse, the sort of thing that circulates all the time among uh, groups of gay people, uh, which has to do with what it feels like to be gay and and what our lives are like. And I mean, you don't have to spend very much time in any lesbian or gay male community to notice that it's not exactly identical to straight life. So uh, nothing that I say is at all controversial. It's just routinely denied, at least in official discourse. Right. And, and do you think that that's something um, people talk a lot about, whether people are born gay or not? Do you think that that um, different way of being that you describe, um, is that something that's learned or is it something that's uh, that you're just kind of born that way, as Lady Gaga would say? Well, yeah, I don't I don't think you're born that way, but I don't think anybody is born that way. I don't think heterosexuals are born that way. Uh, my book isn't about what causes homosexuality or heterosexuality. It's about how people with a certain kind of sexuality produce a set of social practices that are distinctive to them and through those social practices um, attain to certain ways of life and ways of being and feeling. And that's true for straight people just as much as it's true for gay people. But because in the case of straight people, that kind of learning how to be straight takes place within the family and with heterosexual social institutions, we don't think of it as a form of acculturation. We think of it as going to school, raising the kids, going to the movies. Mm -hmm. It's not 
thought of as um, as an initiation into a specific kind of culture. But that's exactly what it is. It's no different in that respect for straight people than it is for gay people. The difference for gay people is that the process tends to take place outside the home, outside the family, and outside the standard social institutions of straight culture. Mm, I see. Yeah, so in a way, it's uh, straight culture is, is, is you're also initiated into it, but it's just taken for granted as being the neutral default yeah. as opposed to, um, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's invisible, not because it's not easily describable, but because it hides in plain sight by virtue of being obvious and taken for granted. Right. And you said yourself that when you when you taught this course, you you kind of felt like you were not um, uh, the right person to teach it because you didn't feel like you had really um, like you were the kind of the kind of um, stereotypical kind of that you had been initiated into gay culture yourself. Well, I've always been told that I'm terrible at being gay, that I'm a complete failure as a gay man, that I don't know how to be gay which is one of the reasons I was interested in the topic to begin with. But it's also the case that I'm a product of gay liberation. I mean, I benefited from the post-Stonewall gay movement. I, grew, I became gay thinking that gay people were the same as straight people, except for the kind of sex that we had, and that the culture of homosexuality, to the extent that there was one, was purely a sexual culture. It had to do with our own sexual practices and institutions. It didn't have to do with non-sexual practices like liking Lady Gaga or um, going to see Hollywood movies from the 30s and reciting all the lines um, in in sync with the actresses or, um, you know, or becoming an opera queen or um, or Broadway musical queen. That wasn't my culture. Maybe there were gay men much older than me who liked that sort of thing, but they seemed to me uh, archaic and pathetic and victims of, hist of a long history of social oppression. And I thought that what gay men of my generation had invented was a sexual life of our own. And that's what being gay meant, along with the gay identity that went with it, which is why when I came to teach originally this class on contemporary gay literature, at the University of Michigan, what I taught were works of gay identity by gay men, for gay men, about gay men that could that finally represented the lives that gay men really had been leading and not, you know, it was not an exercise in somehow trying to figure out how Betty Davis back in the 1930s or 40s somehow managed to convey to gay men something about life. I thought we had gotten over all that, that gay liberation had saved us from all that. Eventually, I decided that that was that my conclusions were, shall we say, premature, and that, in fact, a lot of gay life and a lot of gay male social practices, even after gay liberation, even after Stonewall, still consisted in appropriating straight culture and finding gay meaning in it. And so that's what I decided to teach a class about. And when the class created a scandal, I realized I would probably have to write a book eventually to show that this was a serious, um, right. a serious, a serious analytical 
project and not just some kind of crazy stunt. Yeah. Well, and, and that's interesting because I had read some of the reviews of your book as well, and people seem to be surprised. I think the title catches them off guard because they think it's some kind of how-to manual or something, and it's actually a serious, you know, academic book. Um, but the uh, what do you think that that appeal is that uh, that Hollywood and um, and and Broadway um, has for 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 certain gay men? Um, where do you think? Why, why do you think that's been appropriated by gay culture? Well, I think that's a very hard question, and it's so hard that I don't feel able to give a single general answer to it. I, I think it's not the sort of thing you can answer in a general way. I think mm-hmm. you have to look at particular examples. And the particular examples that I look at, I look at not as representations but as embodying a certain kind of style. If you want to understand gay culture, I think, you can't, you can't look at gay appropriations of musicals in terms of a set of representations that would, that would stand somehow for gay meaning. In other words, you can't take a musical, say, Gypsy, and ask... Uh, what does the character of Gypsy Rose Lee or Mama Rose, what, what gay things do they stand for? There's not some kind of one-to-one correspondence. It's not a code. And that was one of the things that made this book so hard to write and that took me so long. I end up having to conclude that the only way to talk about this is not by looking at the content uh, of a representation, but at the meaning of a style. And style has meaning in a very different way than a representation has meaning. A representation, say an image or a photo, a photo of you is a representation of you. That's an image of you. Um, uh, a, A particular thing that you choose, that you wear, that you put on your wall, that has a style that represents you, isn't exactly an image of you. A style has an effect, but it doesn't have a one-to-one relation to something else that can be easily described. So that's what I have to try to do in the book. I have to try to talk about Um, In this case, I just take one example, a classic example, not a contemporary example, but a classic example that isn't from our day, but which there's no disputing, namely a certain Joan Crawford movie. And I have to ask, what does this this female melodrama, what, what kind of style does that have and what is the meaning of melodrama as a style? You, you mentioned that um, in some of these movies that have become, you know, gay icons, so to speak, um, there is this sense of um, the, the oppression of women in these movies is somehow linked to the oppression that, that gay people feel by society as well. But you said it's not quite the same. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, gay men aren't women, and so their identification with women has to pass through a kind of indirect path. Um, But um, 
But the sections of the book that you're referring to, the reason the book is so long and takes so long is that I feel the need at least to confront the notion that these Hollywood movies are somehow representations of gay men, uh, that, that somehow these actresses stand in for gay men. And so I try to take that mode of interpretation about as far as you can take it to see where it gets us. And so one of the things I do is say, well, uh, take this scene in Joan Crawford's film Mildred Pierce. Does that scene translate a certain kind of feminist rage that, that one can think of a gay equivalent of that gay men might be able to share? So I explore these things, but ultimately I say that they don't get us very far. And so I have to move beyond them to a different kind of analysis, one that treats melodrama as a particular style. Hmm. And it's that style that is um, attractive, not so much the, the exact content of those movies. It's, it's the meaning of the style that uh, I think discloses a certain relation to forms of gay male experience. Um, could you, you talk about camp and teach in one of your chapters, and um, I had actually no idea what camp was before I read your book, so I was wondering if you could just explain uh, what does that mean, and, and what's the difference between camp and teach? Uh, camp is uh, a, a form of gay male social practice which has a long history, Susan Sontag wrote an essay about it um, back in the 60s, and it's a form of ironic appropriation and um, mockery that uh, looks at um, mainstream cultural objects and, and enjoys uh, how awful they are. It's a, it's a way of loving ghastly objects or a way of turning social roles around so that they appear artificial. So one of the examples I use in the book is a line attributed to Tallulah Bankhead, who was one of those actresses who was a gay male icon back in the old days. And she's supposed to have said to a priest at high mass, swinging his censer, Honey, I love your frock, but your purse is on fire. And uh, so it's a kind of it's it's a kind of comic or ironic take on a on an existing mainstream social practice that looks on it as something ridiculous and awful, though kind of though kind of wonderful in its awfulness, and keeps us at a at a certain distance and allows us to see it as a social performance rather than as a thing in itself. Mm -hmm. Eve Sedgwick, in her book, Epistemology of the Closet, makes a good distinction between camp and kitsch that I use. Uh, she says camp is about recognition. It's about um, thinking that some particularly ghastly object might be uh, just ideal for my own delectation that it's so awful, it's good, and that I might think something like, oh, this is just made for me. Whereas kitsch is a way of putting down other people's liking for an unworthy aesthetic object. 
It's to say, oh, that's kitsch. That's the result of somebody else's cynical manipulation. Um, so the person who made that object is trying to get people who are not very discerning to have some kind of cheap sentimental relation to it. And when I call something kitsch, I thereby show that I have superior taste and that I see through that aesthetic manipulation and I feel superior to the sort of people who would find pleasure in kitsch. I say, well, you know, they like it, but that's really kitsch. That's trash. That's not very good. Whereas camp is a way of saying, oh, that's fabulous trash. Right. Yeah. So kitsch is a lot more offensive, basically. No, kitsch is something, kitsch is something that you disclaim that mm-hmm. you that you uh, show your superiority by separating yourself from, whereas camp works the opposite way. Camp is a way in which you get to demean yourself and to make yourself unserious by accepting uh, the trashiness of the appeal of that object. Is there anything that you'd like to um, say about your book in terms of... Um I don't know, any misunderstandings or anything? You said that there there have been a lot of, you know, different issues with the course and then with people thinking your book is one thing and it's not. Um, do you have any, you know, final thoughts on that? Oh, the response to the book has been just demented. But really? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's totally, totally crazy. My favorite review was the one in, in the TLS, um, which, uh, which, which was just hysterical. But... Um, I suppose in a lot of my work, I've found it useful and beneficial to try to bring myself into relation with all sorts of practices and identities that are not my own. I didn't write this book, How to Be Gay, in order to champion one way of being gay, let alone my own way of being gay. I did it to discover the kinds of value I found in ways of being gay that were never my own to begin with, but that I found it was, it was, it was useful. It was, it was inspiring really to be able to relate to those ways of being gay. So I think that a lot of the response to the book has to do with people's perception that I'm promoting one way of being gay or that I'm saying that you have to be gay in a certain way um, or that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to promote my particular version of being gay. I, I think nothing could be further from the truth. I'm enjoying the, the expanded opportunities that I find for perception and for thinking that I find in identifying with ways of being gay that are not my own. And I sort of had confidence in my readers that they would find that that opportunity similarly appealing. That doesn't seem to be the case, but I haven't given up. <laughs> That's good. Do you feel in any way like there's a tradition that is somehow being lost, at least that's the sense that I got when I was reading your book, that even though, you know, one generation comes and finds that, you know, these, um, the, these, the icons of a different time are considered to now be um, tacky or associated with oppression and, 
you know, and people want to distance themselves from that. Um, but I got the feeling that you were trying to say that it's a kind of part of a cultural history that shouldn't be ignored or, or, or dissed. Um, I don't know if I understood that correctly. A lot of people who read the book think that I'm nostalgic. I'm not at all nostalgic. I don't want to turn the clock back to some golden age of oppression when we were all supposedly uh, defiant and engaged in all sorts of queer antisocial practices because somehow that's more radical than today. That's not at all my attitude. I'm interested in an absolutely contemporary question, which is what does sexuality have to do with culture? What does it have to do with culture right now? Not in the past, right now. Now, it is the case that a lot of people think that nowadays gayness has nothing to do with culture and that any suggestion to the contrary is itself a kind of throwback to the past. But all you have to do is look at the sorts of evidence that my book presents and you see that it's obviously the case that gay life now, as in the past, involves something else besides sexual attraction to people of the same sex. There are all sorts of other social practices that go along with it. It doesn't mean that everybody engages in those practices. There are many, many, many different ways of being gay. But nearly all of them involve at least some relation to society culture, aesthetic form that goes beyond mere sexual behavior. So what I want to understand is the logic of that connection between culture and sexuality. What could it possibly mean to be culturally gay? I approached that question skeptically. I didn't think before I started on this project, that there was any way of being culturally gay. But I do think that uh, some relation to culture is something that is, some relation to culture persists in all forms of gay and straight life. And I want to understand what that connection is. It is the case in the book that I have to use some classic examples that everybody can agree on. And so I choose some examples from decades ago. I do go back to those old Hollywood movies, to Broadway musicals, just because if I chose something more contemporary, there might be more disagreement about whether or not it really was or had been a, an item of gay male culture. But I'm not nostalgic. I'm not interested in history. I'm interested in an absolutely contemporary problem, uh, and that is the relation between sexuality and cultural form. Great. Um, if people want to buy your book, where is it available? Is it available on Amazon? Yep, it's available at the moment. Uh, $23, I think, in the U.S. on, on Amazon, um, which is pretty good for a nearly 600-page hardcover. <laughs> so uh, they can go and get it there or at Barnes & Noble uh, online or um I think, it's, I think there are tons of online booksellers. You don't have to use Amazon. There are tons of online booksellers that are selling it. And, of course, you can also get it from the website of Harvard University Press. David, thank you so much for being on today and talking about your book. You're most welcome, Annie. 
You have been listening to an interview with David M. Halpern, author of How to Be Gay. This is your hostess, Annie Sabukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.